Section 1 of Anthropology. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Larry Wilson. Anthropology Book 1 by Immanuel Kant. Translated by Adolf Ernst Kroger. Part 1. Anthropological Didactic. Concerning the manner in which to recognize the internal as well as the external of man. Book First. Concerning the Faculty of Cognition. 1. Concerning Self-Consciousness. The fact that man can entertain the conception of his ego lifts him infinitely above all the other beings on earth. It is this that constitutes him as a person, and by virtue of the unity of consciousness amongst all the changes that may happen to him, one and the same person, that is, a being quite distinct by rank and dignity from things, such as irrational animals are, with whom we can do as we please, and this even when he cannot yet speak of his I, since he at least thinks it, and as all languages must think it, when speaking in the first person, even though they have not a special word for it. For this faculty of thinking is the understanding. But it is noticeable that the child, even after it can speak tolerably readily, does not speak as till some time later, perhaps a year afterward, and until then speaks of itself only in the third person. Charlie wants to eat, to go, etc., and that a light seems to have dawned upon it when it begins to speak of itself as I, from which day on it never returns to its former manner of speaking. Before that time it merely felt itself. Now it thinks itself. It might be a pretty hard task for the anthropologist to explain this phenomenon. The observation that a child for the first quarter after its birth neither smiles nor weeps seems also to rest upon the development of certain notions of insult and wrongdoing that are suggestive of reason the fact that in this period it begins to follow with its eyes glittering objects held up before its face is the rude beginning of the progress of perceptions apprehension of the representation of sensations in order to widen them out to a knowledge of the objects of our senses that is of experience the further fact that now when it attempts to speak its butchery of words makes it lovable in sight of its mother and nurse and makes them inclined to fondle and kiss it continually nay to pamper it into a little commander-in-chief by fulfilling every one of its wishes and desires this amiability of the little creature in the period of its development into humanity must probably be placed to account of its innocence and the frankness of all its still defective utterances wherein there is as yet not the least trace of evil but may also be ascribed on the other hand to the natural inclination of nurses to confer benefits upon a creature which in an endearing way gives itself up entirely to the arbitrariness of another since in this way a playtime the happiest time of all is given to the child while the instructor by becoming also a child as it were 
enjoys the same delight once again. But the remembrance of childish years does not reach back by far to that time, since it is not the time of experiences, but merely of scattered perceptions that have not yet been united in the conception of the object. 2. Concerning Egotism From the day when a man begins to speak as I, he brings his beloved self in front whenever there is the least chance and his egotism progresses steadily in order that he may, if not openly, for then the egotism of others comes to oppose him, at least covertly and with seeming self-denial and pretended modesty, place a preeminent value on himself in the judgment of others. Egotism can contain three presumptions, that of the understanding, that of taste, and that of practical interest. That is, it may be of a logical, aesthetical, or practical nature. The logical egotist considers it unnecessary to test his judgment by that of other people, just as if he stood not at all in need of this touchstone, criterium veritatis externum. But it is so certain that we cannot dispense with this means to assure ourselves of the truth of our judgment that it is probably the most weighty reason why the world of learned men clamors so loudly for freedom of the press, since if that were taken away from us, we should lose an important means for ascertaining the correctness of our own judgment. Let it not be objected that at least the science of mathematics is privileged to decide by its own plenary authority, for if the perceived general agreement of the judgment of the mathematician with that of all others who are devoted to that science with talent and industry had not gone before mathematics would surely not have been exempted from the fear of falling into error somewhere why there are even cases where we do not trust the judgment of our own senses alone for instance whether a ringing of bells is merely a sound in our ears of actual bells and when we consider it necessary to ask others whether they experience the same thing. And although in philosophizing we may probably not appeal to the judgment of others in confirmation of our own, as the lawyers appeal to the judgment of other eminent legal authorities, still every author would be suspected of being in error in his publicly expressed opinions, however important they might be, if he found no followers. Hence it is always a feat of daring to thrust an assertion opposed to general opinion, even that of the intelligent upon the public. This appearance of egotism is called paradoxy. It is not boldness to dare something at the risk of its being untrue, but only at the risk of its finding few believers. A liking for the paradoxical is, to be sure, a logical stubbornness not to be the imitator of others, but to appear as an unusual person, in place of which, however, such a one only appears odd. But since every one must, after all, have and maintain his own way, see si omnis patresic at ego non sic, Abelard. The reproach of being paradoxical, unless it is based on mere vanity to appear different from others, is of no very serious significance. Opposed to the paradoxical is the everyday man who has common opinion on his side, but he affords no more security, 
since with him everything drops asleep, whereas the paradoxical man awakens the mind to attend and investigate, thereby often leading to discoveries. An aesthetical egotist is one whose own tastes suffices him. Let others ever so much criticize, sneer at, or even ridicule his verses, paintings, music, etc. He deprives himself of the chance of progress when he isolates himself with his own judgment, clasps applause to his own works, and seeks the touchstone of the beautiful in art only in himself. Finally, a moral egotist is one who limits all purposes to himself, sees no use in anything that does not bring him advantage, or perhaps, if an endemonist, makes only his own advantage and happiness, but not the conception of duty, the primary determining ground of his will. For since every man forms a different conception of what he considers happiness, it is precisely egotism which reaches a point where no true touchstone of the genuine conception of duty is to be had, since such a conception must be a universally valid principle. Hence all eudaimonists are practical egotists. To egotism we may oppose pluralism, that is, the habit of considering oneself as not embracing the whole world in one's own soul, but as being a mere citizen of the world and acting as such. This much belongs to anthropology. For, so far as this distinction is concerned with regard to metaphysical conceptions, it lies utterly beyond the sphere of the science here to be treated. If, for instance, the question were merely whether I, as a thinking being, have cause to assume outside of my own existence the existence of a totality of other beings in communication with me, a totality called world, the question is not anthropological, but merely metaphysical. Remark concerning the formalities of egotistical language. The language of the chief authority of a state to the people is in our times generally pluralistic. We, X, by the grace of God, etc. The question is whether the meaning is not rather egotistic, that is, indicative of the monarch's own absolute power, which the king of Spain expresses by his Yo el Rey, I the king. It seems, however, after all, as if that formality of the highest authority was originally intended to signify a lowering, we, the king and his council, or the legislature. But how did it happen that the conversational address, which was expressed in the old classic languages by thou, hence Unitarian, is expressed by various, chiefly Germanic, nations, pluralistic you, to which the Germans have added two more expressions, indicating a greater deference towards the person addressed, er and sie, he and they, as if they were not addressing the person at all, but speaking of some absent people, either of one or many, which has finally been followed to complete the absurdity by the pretended humiliation of the speaker to the abstract notion of the quality of the rank of the person addressed, your honor, your high and noble grace, etc., instead of to the person himself, all of which has probably been the result of the feudal system, according to which great care was taken that from the royal dignity downward through all grades, 
until where the very dignity of man stopped and only the man remained, that is, to the class of serfs who alone were addressed thou by their superiors or to the children who are as yet without a will, the proper grade of esteem due to the superior should never be lacking. End of section one.